Hello and welcome to the Innovation Exchange podcast. My name's Dr. Hassan Jahan, and in this podcast series, I'll be guiding you through some of the key challenges facing the NHS today. Through these podcasts, we'll be hearing and meeting some of the innovators that have responded to those challenges. First up, healthy aging, a huge challenge for our nation and the health and social care service. How do we help people to stay physically fit, well and independent? How do we encourage self-care and self-management of long-term conditions? How do we facilitate improving health and well-being and quality of life for older people? Today I'm here with Professor Martin Vernon from NHS England, who has the role of National Clinical Director for Older People. Martin's going to guide us to some of the areas we should be thinking about. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. So what would be really useful is if you could today start the conversation by just taking us through some of the challenges facing ageing. Okay, so the, the population is ageing, we know that, and there's two reasons for that. One is that more people are uh, living longer, and we also know there are fewer younger entrants into the population. So on one level, that's a really good thing. Uh, most people on average will live an hour longer each day. Um, the challenge in all of that is that there is a disproportionate increase in number of people living with uh, functional problems in later life. So um, healthy life expectancy isn't keeping pace with overall life expectancy. Uh, and so just, just for people out there who are clear, because when we think about ageing and the issues of ageing, you sort of have this picture in your mind of uh, a 90-year-old bent over a Zimmer frame, uh, struggling to walk down the road, perhaps in a care home. So when we're talking about ageing, what are we really talking about in terms of age ranges? So ageing is something we all do. It's normal. It's part of being human. And um, the, the characterisation of ageing as, a, as um, people who inevitably decline is actually incorrect. Um, we've recharacterised um, in England uh, ageing through the concept of frailty. This is about the acquisition of health and care needs and deficits. Um, and for many people, um, actually, uh, they are ageing well. We know that people aged 90 and above um, are effectively free of most of those problems and are therefore uh, aging normally um, and that's actually increased over the last few years which is why we're seeing more people living longer um, but what we tend to think about is the people who are severely frail they actually only make up about three percent of the over 65 population but those are the people that as health professionals we tend to see more of. Uh, thanks, Martin. And so with, with regards to these people, um, have you thoughts on, on what we should be doing? What, what should we be focusing on as both clinicians and perhaps non-clinicians out there? Yeah, so there are two things. One is we can actually prevent some of the uh, functional losses that occur in later life. Uh, but we have to do that much earlier in the life course. So uh, as I said, ageing is something that occurs for everybody, um, pretty much from the second, third decade onwards, so we can invest in ourselves from third, fourth decade onwards. Um, but we also have to respond uh, in society, and this is not just about health response, it's about social care responses too, uh, to people who've lost function, who've acquired um, multiple long-term conditions, and meet their needs too. So these are the people that we would traditionally characterise as being severely frail. Um, so it's meeting the needs of those people, but also encouraging the whole population to age well. That's two very separate cohorts, aren't they, in terms of where they are in their thinking. Um, and I completely agree. I think we have to focus on prevention. And, and when you said third, fourth decade, I start to think, oops, hang on, I'm, 
I'm nearly there. <laughs> yeah. I'm past it, actually. And so, so I should be thinking about um, what I need to do for myself. And I think there's probably a vast proportion of people out there that don't think of themselves as old. The conditions that may start to affect them or the condition they're going to be in as they start to age. So how are you going to increase the awareness in that generation of individual who think, not my problem? So the first thing we need to do is, I mean, this is a public health issue, and it's, it's an issue for our country, it's actually an issue across the world. Um, and I think increasingly we're starting to get the, uh, the narrative right to explain to people that ageing is something that you can influence, um, but you have to influence it for yourself. Um, and the, the kind of magic thing in this is that, that the, the interventions which improve people's prospects in life um, are really simple. Um, I think um, Public Health England has, has referred to this as the magic bullet, um, that the, the one thing that we know, and this is evidence-based, uh, that can help people to age well, um, is increased physical activity. And that actually works across the whole continuum of ageing. So even in later life, even when people have started to acquire functional losses, even in people who've got cognitive problems, so for instance, dementia, there is really good evidence that increasing physical activity of one type or another uh, will actually improve that person's individual prospects and their overall well-being. I think uh, we're probably not heading in the right direction in that regard, are we? If you look at the population health and public health stats around physical activity and obesity, I think as a generation, we're probably not winning that battle, are we? Um, no, we're not at the moment, and we need to do something about that. And this is uh, probably one of the most pressing issues, I think, for um, not just the health service, actually for the social care system and for society in general. If people are not ageing well, given that the whole population is ageing, and uh, in 2014 uh, we actually passed a point when the average age of the population exceeded 40, uh, one in three um, men um, and one in two women um, don't take enough uh, exercise and activity to support healthy living. If they were able to do that, the impacts on your overall health is substantial. So up to a third risk reduction for things like dementia, 40% uh, for type 2 diabetes, 30-odd percent for uh, cardiovascular disease. So these are things that um, people can invest in themselves to prevent disease um, as well as supporting uh, their own mental health and well-being. So we've got our work cut out for us, haven't we, Martin? Uh, and so the second cohort we talked about um, was those who are perhaps already aged. Uh, yeah. And so what are your thoughts on the challenges for, for that specific cohort? Um, so we've, we've characterised, NHS Ingham, we've characterised this through the concept of frailty. Um, so what does, what does frailty actually mean? If you've got severe frailty, you're at almost five times the risk in year of dying, of needing urgent hospital care or entering a care home permanently. Even if you've got so-called mild frailty, the early stages of this disorder as you transit from, uh, from healthy ageing uh, into needing more support, um, your risks of those things double. So if we find these individuals um, at the right time, we can intervene in various ways by degree of frailty. But for the severe frail uh, individuals, we need to be much more proactive, much more assertive. Um, so it's about identifying those people 
um, who are most vulnerable and at risk. So to give an example of people who might fall over. Um, so these are things that we can actually actively identify risk of, intervene in and prevent. Those have benefits for people, but they also have substantial benefits to the health and social care system because preventing one fracture means that we're seeing the need for urgent care, recovery, rehabilitation. So Martin, earlier this week, I spoke to some really inspiring innovators that had come up with some solutions to these specific challenges. Some inspired from their own personal experiences, some through intelligence that they've gained from the NHS as a whole. Uh, I think right now it'd be quite useful for you to listen to some of these conversations and we can get your take on it afterwards. Would that be all right? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. The first innovator I spoke to was James Chapman from Safe Steps. Let's hear what he had to say. Hi, is that James? Yes. My name is James Chapman. Yeah, hi James. Thanks very much for joining us today uh, to talk about your innovation Safe Steps. Uh, so to start with, could you just tell us a little bit about Safe Steps? Absolutely. So Safe Steps is a digital tool that provides health and social care professionals with the ability to identify individuals who are at risk of falling and then to put in place a personalised action plan to reduce those risks. So James, how, how does it actually work? So Safe Steps is a, an app. So let's imagine um, an elderly lady, let's call her June, um, and June has um, recently moved into a care home. She's got to that stage of her life where where she needs a little bit more support. Now, when she enters the care home, the care home staff can use our app, Safe Steps, to assess her level of risk. And they would walk through the assessment with her. um, And it looks at lots of different lifestyle factors, behavioral factors, and some more medical factors as well. But it builds up a profile of June. And it builds up that profile based around all of the nice guidelines that are exist around falls prevention. So effectively, it enables the um, care professional to build up a picture of June and look at all of the different things that could be done to reduce the risk for that person. That then becomes a a living and breathing um, action plan that can be put in place and used to reduce June's risk of falling. I mean, if she does have a fall, then the app can also provide uh, the mechanisms and the processes and the awareness for the care professionals of how to deal with that how to uh, look after June and make sure that she gets the best care possible. And so, and so what, what sort of sites have you got running this, James? Is it individuals or is it organisations that are taking this on? So we are primarily working with CCGs um, and we are looking at the different types of settings in which Safe Steps can be used. So we started out working within social care and working within care homes. And we're now live in approximately 100 care homes across the northwest of England. Um, and we've also just launched our first hospital-based pilot in Tameside and Glossop. Fantastic. And um, I'm assuming that the growth is, is on the basis of some results. So have you got some exciting outcomes from, from Safe Steps? Yes, we're, we're very excited, actually, by the initial um, outcomes that we've, that we've observed. I think, you know, we have to uh, realise that we're, we're still in our infancy, you know, but we now have over 3,500 risk assessments that have been completed, looking at all of the risks for older people using Safe Steps. And that data is now becoming richer month on month. And some of the initial outcomes are, are really very promising. We've seen a, a 28% reduction in falls for the care homes who've been using our tool, and actually a 60% reduction in the number of near misses and minor slips that have been occurring. Excellent. I assume, is is it an iterative process, so it updates as things change? 
Yeah, so we're working very closely with uh, the AHSN network, with uh, NICE, with the likes of uh, CQC. And a lot of this has been enabled because we were successful in gaining a place on uh, NHS Accelerator program. And that's enabled us to build those really key stakeholder relationships so that we can make sure that we're putting the best advice into the tool uh, from, a, from both a, a clinical and an academic point of view. So I'd say for us at the moment, it's all about more validation, more evaluation. Uh, we're currently working with uh, Liverpool University and the University of Manchester to undertake uh, an independent um, real-world validation using the, the data that we've got. And above and beyond that, I think it's continuing to work with the various stakeholders um, across the NHS to understand the impact that we could have and also the opportunity for spread and adoption. Excellent. Uh, and my final question now, James, for you. So um, have you got any advice for budding entrepreneurs or innovators out there? Yes, I'd say that there is a huge opportunity to play a part in what is almost quickly becoming a, a healthcare digital revolution. You know, the NHS Digital, NHS X, the new NHS um, AI lab. So I think there's a, there's a big opportunity there for innovators to, to be part of an exciting time. I think on the flip side, I think, you know, don't give up. A lot of people said no in the early days. Um, and I think it's about building resilience. But more important to that and more practically, I'd recommend any healthcare innovator to, to contact your local AHSN. And they can help you um, navigate the system. I think as when we started, that was probably the hardest thing. Where is the, the front door? Um, who do you approach? Um, which meetings do you need to attend? Who do you need to influence? Working with your AHSN can really give you um, a catalyst to, to move quicker and to realize some of your ambitions around bringing digital into healthcare. So, James, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been really exciting to hear about Safe Steps and the progress you're making impacting on falls within the NHS. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Next, I talk to Asad Tabat from MySense. Hi, is that Asad? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, hi, Asad. Thanks very much for joining us today to talk about MySense, your, your innovation. Uh, so for starters, could you tell us what MySense is? Yeah, MySense is a data analytics platform. We combine data from multiple devices and sensors to monitor people's patterns of behavior. We use wearable devices such as Fitbit type devices and also fixed-based sensors that we place around an individual's home so we can monitor daily habits and activities such as how often are they drinking or walking about or sitting on their favorite chair. Sounds intriguing. So, so how does it actually work? So the system uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to learn over a period of 21 days to learn what time people get out of bed, make a cup of tea, um, have some breakfast, go for a walk. We baseline their daily patterns and if we start to notice they deviate, we can notify a carer or family member to uh, check in on the individual to make sure things are, are okay with them. Perfect. And is, is that flagged up as in uh, what, just an alert that comes up to uh, yourselves or, or, or how, does, how does that part work? No, so we don't, um, we don't monitor any of the data. The individual owns the data and chooses who they share their data with. In the instances where we work with care organizations, it may be 
um, a carer or a charity that supports an individual. So they'll receive a notification in the form of a text message to say, oh, Assad doesn't appear to be hydrating as much today. You might want to visit him, check he's okay, or you know, his mobility is starting to come down, or he's not visiting the bathroom as frequently. Um, he may require additional care and support in his home. And in terms of implementation, are you up and running now, or is it still in development? Oh, no, we are up and running. We have already agreed pilot projects with five uh, local authorities, um, a provider of um, national uh, retirement villages in and around the UK, and also a national charity who support people with learning disabilities. And they have a number of locations in the UK, but also international. Have you got a personal story that could demonstrate the benefits of MySense? Yes, we've got a number of case studies. Um, there's been instances where we've provided insights to individuals, where um, carers were going in supporting an individual, but actually our system had noticed that the individual was um, underhydrated, and it turned out that when the carers would leave her home, she was pouring the water into her pot plant and not actually drinking it because she was afraid of going to the bathroom and having a slip or a fall. So. We're providing insights that into people's homes and their patterns that we could never uncover in the past without having the amount of data that we're collecting around an individual. That's a perfect example, uh, and I'm I'm still trying to trying to understand how you would pick that up. Then it, it was so is that on the basis of cameras? No, so we don't use cameras no. and we don't use um, PIR sensors. We're because we're learning people's patterns of behaviour. So we knew the tap was being triggered frequently, so we could see the use of the tap usage, but it wasn't correlating with the toilet usage as well. So we triangulate data from three or more sensors to look around themes of well-being. And in this instance, we were looking around the theme of hydration. So we combined sensors that look at kettle use, tap use, toilet use. And from that, the algorithm was picking up this individual was actually underhydrated. That's fantastic. Um, and so are there next steps for you, Assad, with regards to MySense? Yeah, so we're kind of at that phase now where we've moved from a what you typically call as a startup to a scale-up. So uh, since I joined about two years ago, we're now at about 30 employees, and we're probably going to double in the next six months to about 60 employees. We've recently opened an office in Canada and employed our first uh, my sense employee in Canada. We're getting interest from uh, West Park Healthcare Center over there who also want to uh, run pilot projects with my sense. So we're in that scale up phase right now. And the next 12 months are going to be really exciting for us. Wow, it sounds like it's about to take off, which is great news. Asad, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about my sense. No uh, it's really exciting the work that you've done and, and the fact that it's now being launched globally. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens to it in the future. Thank you all for your time. No worries. Next up, Mike Hurley, the inventor of escape pain. Hi, is that Mike? It is, yes. Mike, thanks very much for joining us today to talk about your innovation, uh, escape pain. So, for starters, could you tell us about escape pain? Yeah, escape pain is a rehabilitation program for older people um, who've got chronic hip or knee pain, which is often called osteoarthritis. And, and how does it actually work, Mike? Uh, basically, people come up twice a week for six weeks, uh, and in each of those sessions when they come up, they get some information about their problem, advice about how they can um, help themselves cope with it, 
And they also undertake a supervised exercise program that shows people that physical activity, rather than something that they should be worried about, actually um, has wide benefits from them. And the uh, exercises are so simple that they realise that they can sort of do it themselves. It puts them back in control of their um, uh, condition. So, Mike, often we find people that have got innovations have a personal story around the development. Uh, so where did this all start for you with escape pain? Uh, to tell you the truth, it started when I was a long, long time ago, when I was 21. I had a motorcycle accident, which dumped me in hospital. And from that, I decided I would uh, move over to physiotherapy. And the uh, orthopedic surgeon said, in about 30 years' time, you're going to have probably terrible knee osteoarthritis. So I thought, well, I've got 30 years to try and sort this problem out. And so, and where are you at with, with escape pain at the moment? Is it being tested or is, is it tried and tested and just being implemented now? It, it's tried and tested. Um, we've done a large randomised control trial that was published some years ago. Um, and for the last five years, we've been rolling it out across the UK, um, developing implementation support tools to help people who want to deliver the programme. Um, it's been endorsed by NHS England, Public Health England, uh, the Charter Society of Physiotherapy, NICE, um, uh, and it's undergoing national rollout through the Academic Health Science Network. Oh, perfect. Uh, Mike, could you just give us an example from one of the sites where this is running, uh, perhaps with a patient story of the benefit? Uh, we have lots of them on our um, website and also on the Twitter feed, but there's some great in feedback from participants who say that not only does the program reduce their pain and improve their function, but it actually um, uh, helps their kind of mental well-being, if you like. They feel much better about themselves because, you know, they're getting rid of some of this chronic pain that's been um, weighing them down for so long. Um, and they can get back to doing things that they used to do before, um, but also the, th the things that make up our quality of life. So it's not just, uh, you know, being able to, to run or walk or anything like that. It's been able to play with your grandchildren to get to the shops, to get up and down the stairs, to sleep better at night. Those are the kind of things that they report the um, the program really starts to help them with. And so what are the next steps for uh, for yourself and for Escape Pain? To continue to spread the program, um, although we're in 210 sites at the moment, um, you know, we need to get to many more sites so that, you know, people can have access to the program in their locality. It has traditionally been rolled out through um, clinical physiotherapy outpatient departments. But the constraints inside the NHS that, you know, we're all aware of have meant that we have started to look outside the NHS. And over the past um, year or so, we've been running escape pain um, in leisure and community centres um, by uh, uh, exercise professionals. Um, so that's really increasing our ability to um, reach a, the, the large number of people out there. Um, who, who we need to be helping. Excellent. So you've come across some barriers with uptake in the NHS and you've, you've worked out your own solution. One of the things that we're finding is that partnerships are, are springing up as we've gone out into leisure and community centres. Partnerships between clinical departments and the community centres are springing up so that they are co-delivering these things uh, at time. And that's that's been really uh, encouraging. Uh, and Mike, have you got any advice for other innovators out there or people in a similar position that, that want to get involved? Yeah, um, I think, first of all, believe in yourself and your innovation. Uh, if you don't believe in it, you know, who else is going to? Um, it's really important to build a good team, you know, who believe in, in you and the innovation as well. Um, collect data, collect evidence. Um, you know, you're going to have to be able to convince people that thing is this thing is worth doing if you want them to 
take it up. And I suppose the last thing it really is is kind of persistence and resilience. You know, it's a very uh, bumpy road out there when you're trying to get people to adopt new things. I think, you know, kind of, uh, you know, Betty Davis said, fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy ride. But it, it, it can be great fun when you when you look back and, and you see how far you've come and how many people you've helped. Uh, well, Mike, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been really insightful hearing about Escape Pain, especially your personal story that you shared with us as well. Thank you very much indeed. And finally, Martin with us about his product, Droplet. Hi, is that Martin? Yes, it is. Hi, Martin. Thanks so much for joining us today. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, your innovation, which I believe is called Droplet? Yeah, what Droplet is, is a smart hydration reminder system. So it both encourages uh, the patient verbally to to hydrate uh, on our timing system, but also uh, has a visual flashing system that enables carers to see at a glance who is drinking and who isn't so they can intervene. Fantastic. And so what stage of development are you actually at with, with Droplet? Well, I say we're kind of post uh, we're post development now. So effectively, we launched the product after this four, after four years of developing it last April. So um, we're now in uh, twenty six uh, English trusts, uh, two Scottish hospitals. We're in a Northern Ireland side, two Welsh health boards. We've actually got some uh, international customers that have now taken Droplet and are working in different international territories, working with various different councils and domiciliary care providers as well. But it's still quite slow progress. But we're in, in a lot of different sites, which is fantastic. Could you tell us a little bit about how Droplet actually works? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it works on a timer system. It's a very easy program. You can cycle it on 20, 40 or 60 minutes so that you can tailor it to uh, the, the patient or person at home's needs so you can actually tailor it what you want. So if they haven't had a drink in that time, it triggers either a verbal or flashing reminder and it only works on a drinking motion. So once you've had a drink, the drinking motion and put the drink down, it resets the timer and it starts the process again. Have you had any feedback from the end user or patients themselves in terms of how they find it? Uh, sure. I can give you an example of a gentleman, Paul Kunal, who has a, a brain damage injury. So he was given Droplet because the, uh, the social services were worried about his hydration levels. Since he was put on to Droplet, he has uh, uh, been drinking a lot more. It's really helped his smoker's cough. So him and his wife have been sleeping better. It's improved his continence uh, and actually is now engaged better with his physiotherapy. And he is significantly better than he was and it's been really positive. I can't help but think, um, I always love these sorts of conversations because it gives me ideas as well. And I was just thinking that, you know, at home you have your Alexa device and you can have have it smart plug so it turns on a light and you, you thought sort of look at the wider application and think to people who are bed bound and say, for example, peg fed or tube fed and think actually it's not beyond the realms of possibility to be able to have a smart feeding or hydration device which either the user can control or can be controlled remotely or even monitored remotely so if you're in charge of let's say 10 bed bound patients you can sit in a central place and know exactly how much fluid has gone through each individual person to be able to keep an eye on on whether or not um, they're being cared for or receiving the right amount of calories or liquids that the, the application is is massive yeah we hope so Excellent. And it sounds like you've got enough test centers to be able to get some of those studies done. Sure. Thanks, Martin. I'm hoping perhaps this uh, podcast will be one more thing to try and help spread the adoption of innovation. So some interesting innovations there, Martin. Back to you, though. What are your thoughts about some of these? Um, one of the things that's really attractive is that they're effectively quite simple things. They're usually grown out of people's own personal experiences and um, because ageing is something that surrounds us, it's very easy to find something you can identify with and pick out a problem that you think you might be able to solve. 
So, for instance, the, the Safe Steps innovation, um, falls is a massive problem for older people. Uh, we don't know exactly how many people uh, over 65 fall per year, but we think it's at least 30%. And it's about a half a million people presenting to emergency services, uh, many of them with fractures with substantial cost uh, burden to the health and social care system. So a really simple innovation in communities that actually prevents that um, is, is fantastic. Um, if we think about escape pain, for instance, um, what, there are a, a number of things that are at the moment almost um, inevitable in later life and, and one of them is the acquisition of musculoskeletal disease, joint disease. And so we've got many people living with pain which has an impact on mental health and well-being. So a straightforward self-management intervention that encourages and supports people to deal with their pain and makes, uh, provides them the opportunity to become more functional um, is going to have a, a significant impact um, for them and their families and um, hopefully one would see this uh, having a, a benefit for the wider social care needs of those individuals as well. So from, from my perspective, I can, I can clearly see some of these are, are very linked, aren't they? Because as you know, in my previous role, I was chair of an urgent care committee, and I remember you know, for, for years we've been talking about falls uh, in a particular age range. And when you look back at those falls, I'd say maybe three quarters were linked to dehydration. And so when you, when you combine some of these apps, or some of these innovations together, I, I think you start to look at a complete picture, don't you? But in your opinion, is there a gap that we're missing? So do you sit there thinking, you know, actually, this is my biggest challenge. Uh, why aren't innovators developing a solution? Or do you think we've got it covered? Um, I don't think we've got it covered. And that's, I think, why there is a it's fertile territory for innovations. Do you think that as time moves on, we're going to have to think about many of these innovations and where they're best used? Because where do you think the health burden lies for the elderly? Um, everywhere is the answer um, and I think over the last two or three decades we've thought much more about the health aspects of ageing, we're now becoming increasingly aware of the social aspects of ageing, ensuring that we've got innovations which can sit in all of those spaces and particularly in people's communities which is where we're putting a lot of um, time and effort and investment, new investment into the NHS through the long-term plan is going into community and primary care settings to support people in their own homes. So, Martin, we've, we've heard about some really exciting health innovations. Um, there may be people out there who are budding entrepreneurs or budding innovators thinking, oh, I've got a solution or, or I, I know of something that, that affected my nan or my gran uh, and I really want to fix it and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, have you got any advice for those people? How do they bring their solutions to the front? Because it, it can be quite challenging, can't it, getting through the front door of NHS institutions with an idea? Uh, yes, it can. I think um, my, my advice would be go for it. Um, there's plenty of space to um, innovate um, around ageing. It, it is, as we've said, the biggest challenge for the health and social care system that we've faced. Um, we know that uh, getting an innovation to take root and to industrialise and be picked up by everybody is hard work. The other thing I would say to innovators is that the simplest ideas are often the most effective. Uh, thank you, Martin, for that. And so is there anything that you wanted to say that, that I haven't brought out? 
Um, no, it's been great chatting to you. Um, as I said, I think we're, we're, we're kind of in a, a really um, exciting phase of health and social care system. I think it's easy to be quite negative about where we're at with our health and social care in this country. We have, I've spent a lot of time talking to colleagues uh, around the world and in particular around Europe. We have one of the best and most effective, uh, cost-effective health care systems in the world. Um, I think our capability to innovate in this country is absolutely amazing. And we've got a, a long, well-established history of that. We've got some big challenges, of, as we've discussed. Um, but it's, it's really great to see some of these um, new innovations coming out um, in ways that actually can really quickly make a difference to many, many people. So great privilege for me to be able to sit here chatting to you about that, and I'm really excited to see what the future holds. Um, I'm, I'm also very grateful for you taking the time to talk to us today, Martin. I think it's clear that there are still some challenges going forwards for us that we need to try to address. And some of that's about bringing the healthcare agenda, the social care agenda, and the mental health agenda all together in, in one pot. It's really exciting to see the investment in the NHS that the government has now announced. Uh, and it's even more exciting to see the investment in technology such as the artificial intelligence that you've spoken about. Uh, so exciting times indeed for healthcare and exciting times for myself as somebody who's looking at being aged hopefully in, in a few years to come. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I'll speak to you all soon.